take your Bibles once again and join me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, if you're using an ESV or a chairback Bible, you'll find it on page 981. And we continue in our series on the book of Philippians this morning, which we've entitled In Christ, Practical Joy in an Impractical World. And we're getting down really to the nuts and the bolts of that statement. We're going to see that in Paul for the next couple of weeks now as he spells this out of how it looks and has looked in his life. Now, as we come to this portion of Scripture, we need to consider what the Christian life is. Now, oftentimes outside of this, this church, outside of these walls, the Christian life is associated with a life that's mundane, that's stuffy, that's tedious. Maybe even some of you have that idea about the Christian life. Or that it's antiquated, that it's, it's a way of depriving oneself of happiness and joy in this moment. In this life. But here's the thing the Bible, our source of truth, repeatedly tells us the very opposite. That the power of the gospel has come in and permeated our lives and it's transformed our minds, and we must continue to live in that power. Because the problem is, with our flesh, we believe the lies that the world and, and our flesh and the devil tells us about true joy. That somehow we can find and experience true joy in this life outside of Christ. And so what we do is we buy into those lies and we begin to go down those roads seeking out that self-satisfaction, that self-satisfying happiness or what we perceive to be joy and what it further leads us into is more brokenness. And we're at the end of this road wondering, how did we get here? Well, Paul has been emphasizing faithful lives of those who have lived worthy of the gospel. That very premise that he began in chapter 1, verse 27, live a life that's worthy of the gospel, having the same weight of this transformative power that is within you because of of, of the message of God. And he says, because of that, because of those people that we've seen live these faithful lives from Jesus to Timothy to Titus, or excuse me, Epaphroditus, and now he's about to, to, to get into his own experience in the next few verses. He says, we can rejoice. We can rejoice that God has allowed us to experience these things. And now here in chapter 3, He's going to begin to tell us and remind the saint that we have a relationship with the creator of all joy. Now, notice that phrase, the saint. And we'll see why we have to single that out in just a few moments. Because we're the only ones that have the relationship with the creator of all joy. And it gives us opportunity to know joy unspeakable that we might be able to live lives in Christ and live our lives in a way among others that when they say, well, how are you able to continue through life through such circumstances? And we're able to go, it's like we can't even get it out. The only thing we can get out is Christ, because of Jesus. Oh, how I hope that we would be able to live lives that way and experience Christ in such a way and experience joy in such a way. So let's consider these verses, verses 1 through 3, and then pray that God would transform 
our minds by his word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are such a good God and that you have created joy for us to experience. We pray that you would use your word and as it is applied to our minds, we ask that you would transform us, allow us to know you and be known by you and experience the joy that comes from this relationship, God. Oh, that you might help us to not buy the lies, but that we might stand fast on your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at these few verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul states, finally, finally. And so here's the deal. Next time I say finally or in conclusion and then go on for another 20 minutes, I don't want any flack about it, okay? (laughs) Because Paul has done that here. Uh, So I'm just trying to be like Paul, guys. Well, in fact, this is not a technical finally, as in our translations, as if these are concluding remarks. After all, in Philippians 4.8, we see another finally, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is good, so on and so forth. So this word that we see here as finally, oftentimes is translated as furthermore or so then. And so really what we're finding here is it's just a transition. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm going further here. I'm going to go into a new section, but I want to tell you about this joy. And so the main thing we need to note about this, these opening phrases is not the finally part as much as my brother's part, the my brother's part. See, the only ones that are able to experience true joy are those that are in Christ the saints, the brothers and sisters in the faith. You cannot experience it outside of that. Now, you can try outside of the sphere of Christ, but all other grounds upon which our joy is built is sinking sand. And if having joy in the Lord here is a command for the church, only found by the church, then what is this incredible gift? How does it differ from other experiences that we might experience in this life? Well, what we need to do from the start here is compare a couple of key terms. That we, we get our, we're in the same realm of, of thought, okay? Let's start with happiness. Our word for happiness in English is de- derived from the Latin word fortuna. It comes from uh, fortuna, and we get our word fortune from it. So perhaps money can buy happiness, but can it give joy? That's the question. And I would venture to answer by saying no. It can't bring true joy because the two terms are not synonymous. See, this is the nature of happiness. When fortune is up, happiness is up. But when fortune is down, so goes happiness. See, happiness is purely circumstantial. If we believe in a sovereign God, then we know uh, circumstances are left up to interpretation. So circumstances are what they are. But happiness, in the end, is a fickle friend. Not so with joy. 
Joy is something that is non-circumstantial. Joy isn't dependent on fortuna. It's not dependent on our fortune. Joy is found in Christ. Joy is found in Christ and Christ alone, and He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so whether a fortune is up or down or whatever might be the case in our lives, whatever this, this life throws at us, we have a sure and steady anchor that is Christ who says in John 16.33, just point blankly, in this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world Though, though this world is full of sinking sand, I am a rock. And here's the thing. The Apostle John holds fast to this statement. He even picks it back up later in his letter, and he does so multiple times. He talks about this, this idea of overcoming the world three times in chapters 4 and 5 of his letter in 1 John. We see that overcoming the things of this world is only possible by faith in Christ Our only source of joy is Christ. So we must abide in Him and He in us. It's our only hope. He is our only sure and steady anchor. And that's why we have made the distinction so many times that even though many may theme the book of Philippians joy, we cannot just take joy and and remove it from the context or from the sphere of in Christ. There's no such thing thing for the Christian. We cannot separate joy from Jesus. That's why we say this is in Christ the only way to find practical joy in an impractical world. Listen to how Christ is described in Hebrews 1 verse 9. It says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness, a giliasas also known as extreme joy beyond your companions. Oh, how I long, how I long for myself to experience and to know true extreme joy in knowing Christ and being known by him. And I I pray that for you as well, that he might revive you to know extreme joy. I hope you do. And that is our only hope of knowing joy is to be in Christ and be known by Him, much less knowing extreme joy. But again, let's remember, we must not forfeit this promise of extreme joy by buying into the cheap tricks of this world and to continue to buy the lies of our flesh that we can somehow find it outside of Him. We cannot. The psalmist rightly states in Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At His right hand where our Savior sits. Many of us hear these things this morning and we'll talk about joy, but some of you may think, you know, I would love to have this joy. I would love to know joy. I know I should have it. I know I should rejoice in the Lord always, but I always feel so down. My circumstances get me down. What can I do? How can I experience joy? That is maybe the question that exudes from your heart this morning. See, many of us have these questions, but here's the thing. I'm afraid that if we perceive that the answer that we get is not what we want to hear, it leads us into further despair. 
or if we hear an answer that's not easy enough, like abide in Christ. Well, you know, I'm trying. That's, that's, that's so tough. Or, oh, I've got to be in his word. Oh, I've got to know him. Oh, it's just so tough. It can lead us to further despair. Please do not respond this way today. Following Christ is not easy. But here's the thing. The more you wrestle, the more you know, but the more you rest on the promises of Christ, the more joy you will experience. And so you have to know and you have to engage Him in His Word and in prayer that you might know and experience true joy in this life. Yes, I know that it can be tough. But that's why we have each other. That's why we, we encourage one another to keep going, keep pressing on in the Lord that you might experience joy. Look at the next clause in verse 1. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Okay, Paul, what is with this little riddle here? It seems riddleish, doesn't it? Uh, what are these same things that he is writing? Well, we need to consider the context. And when we see what comes next... It helps us to derive what he's talking about. See, he begins to talk next about these warnings against false teachers. Here's the thing. He's confident that one of the main ways that we can continue to have joy in Christ is not to be deceived by a false message. See, believing a false message concerning the gospel is one of the quickest ways to find your joy stolen that there is. We must guard our joy in the Lord and in his true gospel. And Paul's really spelling that out for us here in, in the opening of chapter 3, that our joy is founded upon sound doctrine. Yes, sound doctrine. Doctrine is not a dirty word. In fact, what we find is that we could be so bold as to say, if you don't think doctrine is important to your experience of joy, in the Christian life, you don't really understand the message of the New Testament. Because that's what it is about. We must, for the sake of our joy, hold to the pure gospel, the purity of the gospel. One that is unsullied by false teaching. Well, there are guys that have been sullying the gospel. Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, we can see emphasis right here that Paul is placing upon all of that because of the language that he's using. And now the first thing that should jump out to us here is the repetition. Look out, cubed. I want you, you want joy, start by looking out, looking out, looking out. Be sober-minded and watchful, Peter would tell us. Because our enemy, our adversary, roars like he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So we must keep our wits about us. We must look out, look out, look out for dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Paul has one group in mind with all three of these descriptions. He hints at their identity even further because of the language that he uses right after this when he says circumcision. He's talking about Judaizers. 
Judaizers, these legalists, these group of religious Jews that have been deceiving new believers into returning to all these regulations of Judaism that are really just in opposition of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Legalists is what they are, trampling underfoot Christ because of their adherence to all the ceremonial Judaism that they're trying to put these new believers back under this yoke of the law. And here's the thing. If you live by the law, you die by the law. If you think that by your keeping the law, you're meriting favor with God, you're just heaping up for yourself condemnation. That is not the way in which we are saved. See, anything that adds to the gospel, being more than grace through faith, is guilty of these very things. Well, let's think about these, these terms that he's using. Look out for the dogs. Dogs. This is derogatory. Now, these dogs are not man's best friend here. You might see this and think, look out for dogs. I'm looking out for dogs all the time. I love dogs. Bring me all the dogs. Let them stay at my house. Well, that's not the type of dogs that we're talking about here. Um, this language is masterfully used by Paul because the progression is like this. These Judaizers were people that um, called Gentiles dogs. Dogs were the, the very thing that these men used to speak of, these folks that are new believers. And, and he's saying, no, they're the dogs and watch out for them. Now, these were the same type of people because of their ceremonial religiousness, because of their legalism. They thought that they were righteous towards God. But in fact, they're the ones that are evil. They considered themselves doing right by still being circumcised in their flesh to be acceptable to God. And Paul says, look, that practice is simply, simply put, it's mutilating your own flesh it's, it's worth nothing. See, he's not pulling any punches here. This is not his first go-round with these Judaizers, who he would sometimes refer to as the circumcision party. And you can tell he's quite angry with them. And he's quite angry with their whole doctrine because it's deceiving others into thinking that Christ is not all-sufficient. And so he, to the Galatians who were really dealing with this, he would ask them this. He would say, who has bewitched you? With this doctrine. He's saying you're foolish. Oh it's foolish to go back to such things. And then in Galatians 6.15. He would go on to say. For neither circumcision. Counts for anything. Nor uncircumcision. But a new creation. He is pointing them. To the real soul level work. That is important. And as far as Paul is concerned. This wasn't something. That was just slap on the wrist worthy or this wasn't something just to go you know as a fad it'll pass it was something that was so serious because he knew it challenged the purity of the gospel he took it so seriously that he even opposed Peter to his face about it yes Peter the same one who the, the apostle that walked with Christ and was there when he was betrayed and, and walked through him and, and all of that. And, and though he had denied him three times, like Christ said he would, he was also restored three times on that lakeside when he was told, feed my lambs. 
And this was like one of the stalwarts, one of the giants of the faith. But they were, in, uh, they were doing missions one time, and, and some guys came up from Jerusalem to see what was going on with these Gentiles. And up to that point, Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. But when this, when this group from Jerusalem comes up, he removed himself, and he started to put himself in, in an elevated status and looking down upon these Gentiles and taking part in what these uh, these Judaizers or these, these folks that believed what they did about these things were doing. He was eating with them instead. And so Paul, he got up in his grill about it. He got right in his face about it and opposed him to his face and said that, that you stand condemned for what you're doing, Peter, and you're condemning others. And so that's how seriously he took it. And he got into Peter's face. So, so he affirms to the Philippians, many of which are Gentiles, Men probably not circumcised in the flesh. And he states to them right here. He says in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. For we are the circumcision. They think they are, but we are. See, circumcision symbolizes the application of the covenant promises to individuals whom God has chosen to receive. And Paul appeals to himself and to the Philippians and to us when he says that we are the true circumcision. We are the chosen recipients of the promise of God, not because of something we've done, but simply because of faith, because our hearts have been circumcised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what are these promises? What promises in particular do we experience? Well, we see in Genesis 17 that one of the aspects of this divine covenant that's promised is a spiritual relationship between God and Abraham and thereafter his seed. Now, in the new covenant, there's a promise of spiritual relationship between God and Jesus, as specified in Galatians 3. Abraham's not seeds, but seed about Jesus It is Christ and those found in Christ alone. The offspring of the true Israel of God in the covenant, old and new, was not about those according to the flesh or what they did, but those according to the Spirit, even then, because there is a circumcision talked about in the Old Testament that is the same in which it's talked about in the New. There's a circumcision of the heart. Jeremiah 31 through 33. Ezekiel would talk about it as well. That there had to be a cutting away of the nature of man. And so we see that this next clause bears a lot of weight. For we are the circumcision. Keep going. Verse 3 who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here's the thing. The next statements mark out membership a bit in the New Covenant. We must have experience of the Spirit of God. We must experience faith towards Jesus Christ. And we must have a refusal to rely on oneself. And this all happens through regeneration and conversion. Notice this phrase, worship by the Spirit of God. Worship by the Spirit of God. Worship here is latruo. It means service. It's likened to the same word that's used in Romans 12.1 where it says we are to 
by the mercies of God, present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual act of worship or service. And it's dealing with the heart of the worshiper, the nature of the worshiper. And it all hinges upon this phrase, by the Spirit of God. Well, the next outward mark is that we would glory in Christ. We would boast about Jesus. The Lord, by the power of the Spirit, takes for himself a people. He grants to them faith. He gives them the Spirit. And then the Spirit reveals to them more and more that they are to put no confidence in the flesh. Well, Alec Moyer explains this. He says, it is true that we are God's people only because the Spirit of God has quickened us from the dead. What ground is there for self-praise? If Jesus alone is worthy to be boasted of, what room is there for self-glory? If the energy of the flesh can only consign us more and more certainly to the wrath of God, what use is self-reliance? Flesh sums up what a person is apart from the grace of Christ. The human being as yet unchanged by God's regenerating and redeeming work. We must have the power of the Spirit to circumcise our hearts. And by that, we know we had nothing to do with it. Just as Jesus would explain in John 3. So we once did not glory in Christ. We once gloried and boasted in our own things. See, we're going to see that in the next few verses. Next week, we're going to see that, that all those things, there were things that, that Paul himself thought were profitable. He says, I don't glory on those things anymore. Glory is not doxa here as usual, but kaushamai, boasting. We boast only in Christ, which means we truly don't put any confidence in the flesh. The flesh here is descriptive of the carnal man. Just as the flesh of circumcision is dead, so is the natural man. Anything outside of dependence upon the Holy Spirit and faith is a dead work. The important theme of joy found in Christ in the Christian life is now negatively being set against this warning that those who by their legalism and false doctrine, it, they steal joy. And here's what legalists do. Legalists can simply be understood as plusers, if you will. It's Jesus plus something equals salvation. They're dogs. Evil workers who add work to salvation. Mutilators of the flesh, adding ceremonial religion in order to be saved. Any of this activity puts you outside of the camp. As a, and it's a clear picture that Christ is not all your boast. is not all your confidence. See, these things detract from the sufficiency of Christ and threaten the true doctrine of salvation. That's why grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is more than just a quippy little reminder. It's upon which the purity of the gospel is built. It's the pillar upon uh, which the, the, the original gospel was built upon. And that's why the reformers would point back to it and say, we have to get back to this. This is the true teaching of the apostles. 
So here's the thing. In conclusion, if you point to anything other than faith and faith in Christ for confidence before God, you fall into the same legalistic camp. We cannot point to the sincerity of a confession or an activity. We cannot point to our baptism as to being made right with God. We have to point to Christ by faith who by the Spirit's work in us makes us a new creation. The old is gone. The new is come. And, and we be here next week because we're going to see that that's what Paul does. He says, look, I used to think that being born into the right family gave me merit before the Lord. I was, a, I was an Israelite. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Furthermore, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Says, and so for us, it would be like, I was born into a Christian family. I was baptized. I, I was at church every time the doors were open. He says, I was, he'll go on to say, I was a Pharisee. Okay? I went to Bible school, for goodness sakes, is what he's going to be saying. If anybody was doing the, the, the right things, it was me. But I came to the realization when I met Christ and I became a new creation that all those things that I put my confidence and trust in as to earn me merit before the Lord to be acceptable to Him, they were refuse. It was dung. It wasn't worth anything but to be thrown out into the trash heap. No. He says, my confidence is only in Christ. I put no confidence in myself or in my flesh. Every righteousness that I thought I had was a filthy rag. If you've never trusted in Christ today, today is the day of salvation. Perhaps you have always pointed to religious activities in your life. Or maybe you've just pointed to your own moral standard. I've been good. Let me tell you, that is not going to cut it before a holy and just God. If you've never trusted in Jesus, the, the only one who lived a perfect life, to, to be able to impute to you a righteousness, an alien righteousness that you could not obtain and you could not do, and then trusted in his death to pay the penalty for your lack. To pay the penalty for your sinfulness. And then to know that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised him up from the grave and gave him resurrected life. That we might too know the resurrection. If you've never trusted in that and rested in that, do so today. Stop your fighting. Stop your toil and your labor. Christ says it is finished. Believer, continue to trust in Christ. Continue to trust in Christ. He is your only hope. You must trust His truth and His promises and stand on His promises that they are yours only by faith in Christ Jesus. Fight the lies. That this world in your flesh might tell you that true joy can be found apart from him. It cannot. Please. Please do this. Do this today.